Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 59 of Citizen Dame. We're back. We took a little bit of a break, and I'm hoping that means we've come back refreshed, happy. Is the world still on fire? It's always on fire. Yeah, yeah, it's always on fire. We know this. I think the world was on fire. Like, last last time, the world was not as much on fire, but it still is, yeah. And here's hoping I don't sound quite as much like death like I did last time out, so. <laughs> you, had a very, you had, like, a very deep, sultry voice. It was so sexy and, like, <laughs> It was for Noir Vember, and now it's over, and Karen's that, back to normal. That was my sexy voice. <laughs> So where do we want to start today in the world? Oh, should we get the garbage person out? We're going to get the garbage people out. The question is, which garbage man to start with? There are so many this week, but let's start with the oldest and oldest bit of news, at least. Bernardo Bertolucci died this this week. Uh, If you don't know, he's the director of several movies, including Last Tango in Paris, which, if memory serves, we talked about the controversy on our podcast yes, we did. regarding Last Tango yeah. and Maria Schneider and the infamous Butter Assault. But apparently, famed film critic David Edelstein did not listen to our episode <laughs> because he posted a in-memoriam photo of that scene. And what asinine thing did he say? Grief goes better with butter or something yeah. like that. Uh, it was, it's just like all kinds of fucked up. I mean, you you go like, whatever you think of Last Tango in Paris, and there are all kinds of problems with Bertolucci, you know, he was a very influential filmmaker, and it's okay to talk about his films and to admire some of them and to also talk about the problems that he had and everything. But to put that up, like, Jesus Christ. He claims that he did not know about any of the background. Bullshit. A film critic who doesn't know background. I could expect that of, you know, a fanboy who has a website and doesn't know. But I This not- is why we need film struck people. Yeah. <laughs> if he didn't know, if he didn't know, it's because he willfully chose to avoid reading anything about it. Because this has been everywhere. It was everywhere yeah. several months ago when this really hit again. Like it's surfaced a few times, but when this really came up, this means that he just deliberately chose to not read any of it or look into it i don't believe he didn't know i think he knew every detail i think he's just using that as an excuse but anybody who's writing about film should be having the intellectual curiosity to look into these things whether you choose to believe them or not is a different story but to say he didn't know about it is total bullshit and he also, I think that last week he'd gotten into trouble maybe over some racist comments or something like that, and he used the same kind of excuse of, of like, oh, I didn't know. And it's like, no, you do. And if you don't, you're a fucking idiot and you should not be writing anything about film because you're obviously just not paying attention to anything that has to do with film. This is the same asshole who wrote the Wonder Woman review talking about Gal Gadot as, as like a babe in a super babe in the woods and all of that creepy stuff i'm i'm shocked that anyone is still employing him and npr isn't anymore right npr's fresh air where he was employed has decided to part ways now he's still associated with vulture 
and and New York Magazine, they have not said anything about removing him. So I'm very interested to see how far that goes. Uh, his quote was, I didn't remember the scene as a rape and I didn't know the real life story about Maria Schneider. The line was callous and wrong, even if it had been consensual, but given that it wasn't, I'm sick of the thought of how it read and what people logically conclude about me. I have never and would never make light of rape in fiction or in reality. You know, I'm still calling bullshit. It is bullshit. Bertolucci is one of those, as, as Lauren mentioned, not immune from similar controversy. You look at something like Last Tango and that story. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Stealing Beauty, and even that movie is so goddamn problematic. What have we seen with these guys, you know, these auteurs? They have their fiefdom of male critics that just think like they do, and it's very disturbing. <laughs> I do think that you can appreciate someone's films and you can talk about someone and, and you can be sad that someone has, has passed. It's sad that Bertolucci died, you know, and still talk about all of the issues that are surrounding it. There were, there've been several articles published talking about um, the problems that, that Bertolucci's films have and also the influence that he has had. And that is something that we need, you know, that he kind of came up at a time when particularly auteurs were being viewed as like, do no wrong kind of thing. You know, anything that you could do to get the shot was what you should be doing. And of course, we've reached a point, particularly recently, where that's not okay, and we're not okay doing that. And it was never really okay, but it was more acceptable. And now we're actually having a conversation about just like, no, you can't abuse your actors to get the shot. You can't abuse women and and tell them one thing and then do something else in order to get a natural reaction from them. That's not right, and it isn't fair for whatever reason you're doing it. So I, I, we have to have a balance with these things and talking about them. You know, Bertolucci was a great filmmaker. He also did some really problematic shit. Moving on <laughs> to another director that is problematic. Who's not a great filmmaker. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Director. <laughs> Paul Schrader actually is a friend of mine on Facebook. I don't know why somebody tagged me in one of his Facebook posts because he didn't know what ableism was. And I think the caveat was he didn't believe it existed. And so I had to elucidate him on that. And then he friended me. So go figure. Um, we've never Paul Schrader friended you on Facebook. That's funny. We've never interacted, but he is a friend of mine on Facebook. I did not see this because I don't actively use Facebook. You gotta send him a message, be like, Paul, what the fuck? Yeah, Dude, Paul. Come on. Paul. <laughs> Paul. I know I know this because we're such good friends because we're on Facebook together. Listen to the <laughs> podcast, Paul. We can teach you things. Uh, so Paul Schrader is trying to get some type of Oscar buzz going for his film First Reformed, which you can read a review of Lawrence thought specifically <laughs> on the film at the Citizen Dame website. I have the screener. I have not watched it yet, but I have no. I have no reason not to. And I kind of want to, to see how angry it will make me. <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. Karen and I are at odds with the movie, so maybe I'll like it. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Well, I haven't seen it either, so we'll see if I hate it. And if I do, then you'll obviously love it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my prediction would be that you would like parts of it, and then at a certain point it would lose you. Like that, and that's kind of what happened to me, quite honestly. Well, Paul Schrader went to Facebook, I guess because he thought it was a private place where he could share his thoughts. And 
Old Matt doesn't understand Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) He says, quote, I was sent a script yesterday, a very, very, very good script, which screamed Kevin Spacey for the lead. Kevin Spacey probably sent it. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, back to the quote. I told the producer I'd direct it if they would make it with Kevin. The producer responded that that was not possible. I believe there are crimes in life, but no crimes in art. Spacey should be punished for any crimes his actual person created, but not for art. All art is a crime. Punishing him as an artist only diminishes art. Put Celine in jail. Put Pound in jail. Punish Wilde and Bruce if you must, but do not censor their art. Where do we want to start with this cavalcade of Loopy Loop? When he put said put Celine in jail, I was like, is he talking about Celine Dion? What the fuck is happening right now? Well, and then with Wilde, someone else was like, I can't believe he's including Olivia Wilde in this. And I was just like, wait, are you being serious or funny? Like, because I'm pretty sure. As, as Kim said, this is why the world needs film struck people. Oh, my God. Well... I mean, this is actually kind of indicative. If you've ever read any of Paul Schrader's, like, work on film theory or film criticism, this is very indicative of the way this man thinks. Like, he, it's disconnected, it's confusing, and it's not as smart as he thinks it is. And so this doesn't surprise me at all, but dear God. I, I mean, as we all know, Kevin Spacey did commit a crime as far as Allegedly. whether you believe Anthony Rapp or not. And and we believe victims on this podcast. And according to Anthony Rapp, he was molested. I mean, he was assaulted as a child. That is a crime. Unfortunately, as I tell numerous men who are stupid, our legal system when it comes to rape, especially the rape of men, is very broken. There's not going to be prosecution, unfortunately. So to say punish him for any crimes, well, that would be great if we lived in a world where the legal system was effective. You know, punish him for any crime. That is a white male entitled person who knows, knows that that's not going to happen and says, give him a pass. And I have a real issue with him comparing him to Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde went to jail for consensual sex. It was just not acceptable to be a homosexual during his time period. There is a very marked difference between sexual orientation and being persecuted for that and actually raping a small child. Kevin Spacey hasn't been under accusation and all this beca- and losing his career because he decided to say that he was gay. It's That's something that most people assumed anyway. It's because of his actual actions. And then also it didn't help that he blamed it on being gay. <laughs> like, that was stupid. But it was because he was actually going after people. He was committing assaults, allegedly. We have to say that. But this, I'm so tired of making excuses for people and saying, oh, but it's art. We can't just excuse anything people do just because they're really good at something. See, here's here's one of the other things that bothers me about some of the reactions to, to particularly to these comments by Paul Schrader, is that suddenly everyone is like, oh, this this is a bridge too far, right? And and Spacey has been known for being a, an asshole, basically. Not, not necessarily a rapist or anything like that. We only just found out about that fairly recently. But he's been known for being an asshole and for being abusive and mean to people on his sets. And of course, the sexual assault stuff immediately is a bridge too far. One of the things that I have a problem with about some of the particularly dude critics reacting to Paul Schrader is very similar, is that we've known a lot of shit about Paul Schrader for a very long time. He made a film called The Canyons with a screenplay by Brett Easton Ellis. And it was notorious, like the 
a porn star basically said that he was uncomfortable with the way they were treating Lindsay Lohan. He has had he has had a long history of being mean to women, of being abusive to women, of abusing women in his films. And then the second he says something that is wrong about Kevin Spacey, that's when we cancel this guy. I'm fucking sick of this shit. I'm sick of particularly men standing up for directors that behave like this, be like, oh no, he's an artist. And it's it's the same sort of shit going round and round. You know, I think we're gonna find out something particularly disgusting about Paul Schrader before long. As, as Lauren says, who did you hurt? <laughs> but I was also going to say, as as Lauren has mentioned before on, on social media, you know, no one is owed a job. No one is owed yeah. a career. No one is owed the ability to make art. You know, no one gets that just because you're a good actor. And again, his examples are bad examples. And he's really, I think, hoping that stupid people think he's talking about Celine Dion. You know, <laughs> Bruce, I'm assuming he's talking about Lenny Bruce the comedian who was arrested for obscenity. Obscenity is not assault. Those are two different things. And if you are considering them the same, there is a bigger problem with you. Yeah, he is drawing a false equivalency and he's doing, I I don't think he's stupid. I think he's doing it deliberately. He's saying that- It's a free speech thing. Yeah, this is just wild, like wild being persecuted, and that would be absolutely true if the thing that we had like kicked Kevin Spacey out for was simply being gay. That is not the issue. Kevin Spacey can be gay. Kevin Spacey cannot have sex with children. Like that is not an okay thing. In in any capacity, he cannot want to have sex with children. This is not something that we accept in our society. Paul, oh, Paul. God, Paul my Facebook friend, Paul. I feel like we need to have a talk. We've never talked, but I feel like we should talk. Or or maybe not, actually. Maybe we shouldn't talk. DM him and be like, dude, seriously? Treating women the way he treats them, it sounds like. The way he views women, do you really want to have a conversation with him? It's probably for the Uh, best. I mean, even some of the stories that that circulate about him, and you always have to take these things with a grain of salt, but some of the stories that circulated about him um, uh, on the set of Taxi Driver are just very disturbing. And, you know, I mean, you just have to watch the guy's films to know that he, his films portray a very skewed view of sexuality and particularly of women, but just in general. This this is not someone to stand, guys. I hate to say it. Like, you're going to find out some shit about this dude. Well, moving on to people we found shit out about and it makes me upset, but it shouldn't because Wait, did we you live seriously in a world- not know this already? I feel like I did not know this. I, didn't I really never know this no stuff idea. about people, yeah. and I've known this for a long time. Oh yeah, yeah I, I had this is the first time I was hearing about it. Um, Clearly, and again, Karen talks to all the hip people. <laughs> yeah, Karen's in the know. So Neil deGrasse Tyson is a garbage person now. Welcome, Neil. Fox and the producers of the television series Cosmos. Here's a fun fact. I didn't know Cosmos was still on. Oh, my roommate watches it all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, they brought it They brought it back for Tyson. It's like season two. I thought it was like a one season wonder and then it was gone. So I didn't even know it was back. They have opened into an, uh, an open investigation into multiple sexual misconduct claims against Neil deGrasse Tyson. There was a report on a, the website Pathios where two women accused him of inappropriate sexual behavior and they are now investigating it. Um, The original article had a doctor of one of the universities claim that 
Neil deGrasse Tyson groped her in 09. Another woman claimed that she quit her former job as his assistant in response to repeated inappropriate sexual advances. This is all from Variety. They are roughly a year after other claims from a musician who claimed that she was raped by him when they were both graduate students. Fuck Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an asshole. I don't care about science anymore. Well, actually, I care about science, but we need other people talking about science and not him because he's a horrible human being. Well, and he's just been an asshole for as long as anyone can remember. He's He's just an asshole. But the thing is, like, if you really read the story... And you listen to what Dr. I think it's Adler had to say when she's describing what happened. It's not just that he groped her. It was like this really drawn out, weird, gross situation at a party. Kristen, you and I have been to these kinds of events. It's that kind of thing where it's like, ooh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is here. And so she wanted to meet him and it turned into this really weird, awful situation. And something else that I found this morning, Joanna Robinson, who writes for, uh, I think it's Vanity Fair. She actually tweeted, because Vulture picked up the story too, and so she tweeted a link to it, and then she said, I mean, I was 25 or so. It was nowhere near as bad as any of these stories. It was barely a thing at all, but he was famous and knowingly crossed the line. Hashtag me too, and I believe these women. And then she said, It's an odd thing as these stories come out to reframe and reconsider your own interactions with these men. Some accusations you go, Oh, yes, yes, I felt this from him myself, and I know this is true. You know, I think I think that I've heard some of the similar things that you have, Karen. It's just it's exhausting. I mean, I think we we talk about this all the time, and we've actually had a couple of weeks where we haven't had that many garbage people. But you just keep on hearing about these guys, and and the problem is that at a certain point, very very little of it is surprising anymore. I'm not surprised by Neil deGrasse Tyson, partially because I had heard some of the stuff that was talked about last year. But even when that even when that stuff was was being talked about, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think it's because the, these are men in positions of exceptional power. They're exceptionally well known, and people like—I hate to say it—people like him. They're they're almost used to not being paid attention to by women, and then suddenly they get famous, and it's like, oh, now I get all of the attention that I deserve. It's Chris Hardwick syndrome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so it's it's this really warped and toxic and scary thing because this this is part of what patriarchy is and this is part of what toxic masculinity is is that these men think that they have a right to this sort of attention and sex and doing whatever they want to to whoever they want to and not really worrying about the consequences because there aren't going to be any consequences for them you know i think that this is going to blow over i think that you know, Fox will investigate and they'll do a similar thing that they that AMC did with Chris Hardwick and just say like, oh yeah, well we didn't find that there was any real problem and we're moving on. It, it's like it it's reached a point where it almost doesn't matter anymore. Well, and one of the disturbing things about it is how long it took for people to actually start covering this story. I mean, yeah. these accusations have been around for a while and no one has been talking about it. That's really frustrating because it's just like. What, why, how do you decide which stories you're going to cover and which ones you're not, guys? Why is this one any, you know, any less worthy of coverage? Is it because you just really like Neil deGrasse Tyson? I think it is because he's been sort of this poster boy for, you know, accessible science. And I, to, to be honest, I don't like the guy. I've never particularly liked him, but it has nothing to do with, you know, whether or not he's he's a sexual assaulter or anything like that. No, it's because he's an asshole. <laughs> 
there's the sense that that he's so popular and he's so unassailable that he isn't like someone like Les Moonves who no one really knows, right? He is he or Kevin Spacey who a lot of people never really liked. He's someone that is beloved. This sort of thing is just like, well, it's just one woman we're going to ignore it. Now it's three women and, you know, now we actually have to talk about it. Fuck Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's that's all <laughs> I got. Uh but thankfully that's all the garbage men we have for this week. Moving on to some light casting news. I don't know who put this up here, but I feel like it was done with me in mind. Um, hello. It was done with <laughs> me in mind. <laughs> so apparently Guy Ritchie is going back to the world of his early films, something like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch. Good. He's making a film called Tough Guys, T-O-F-F, so I'm assuming they're going to be covered in like toffee. No, I'm... no, no. I would watch Colin Farrell covered in toffee. I would so watch Colin Farrell covered in toffee. It's a movie about Colin Farrell getting toffee poured on him by. Well, actually, with Henry Golding too. So yeah, by Henry Golding, <laughs> and they're both shirtless. Henry Golding and and, and Colin Farrell get toffee put on them by Matthew McConaughey. As and Hugh Grant watches, and then Hugh Grant narrates it for us. Yes. yes, yes, okay. None of that is in the movie, unfortunately. But Guy Ritchie should really think about doing that. I mean, he he should. Um, it's the story of uh, a man played by Matthew McConaughey who builds a weed empire and wants out, but apparently weed is still like really like life or death. And the other characters are quote either complications or helpful to his scheme. This is all courtesy of the Hollywood Reporter. Michelle Dockery is going to play McConaughey's wife. She's replacing Kate Beckinsale. Henry Golding is going to play a Vietnamese gangster. Hugh Grant is a photographer who snaps scandalous photos and schemes to blackmail him. Henry Golding is playing a Vietnamese gangster? He's not Vietnamese. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) And Colin Farrell is going to play a guy who trains MMA fighters. Production is already underway. It should be out, I'm assuming, next year or the year after. This movie does not sound like it's for me, but it's for me because I'm going to go. Because it's Henry Golding and Colin Farrell smothered in toffee! <laughs> it, it sounds like Guy Ritchie going, okay, I'm done with Aladdin. I'll go back, do what I'm good at now. It, one for me, one for them. No, exactly. This actually excites me more than I think anything else Guy Ritchie has done recently. Because I'm like, oh, you're going back to the stuff that you know. If this is just going to be a sort of a more star-studded lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, I am there, man. This is awesome. Same. Yeah, this so sounds same. fun. I just got a little hung up on that Vietnamese thing, but <laughs> but yeah. It's not a Man from Uncle sequel, so I'm very upset. Because no one wants that. People do want that. Clearly. after this? They want Who this. Knows? Obviously, Henry Cavill and Army Hammer can ride by on their Vespa, see this toffee-covered mess... And comment about it, and then it gives them the impetus for the sequel. Boom. Or or they join in. They get off their Vespas and join join the fun. Everyone's just covered in toffee. <laughs> join the toffee madness. That's all I know. Okay, that's the sequel. <laughs> that sounds messy. Some poor woman would have to clean all that up, and that's just not fair. I had a really crass that's comment, my- but I'm not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> 
equal. I think my head probably went even more crass. So. Ken, yeah. um, have you met Kristen? There's no way you were more crass than her. No, no, no. <laughs> I've said some things in front of Karen that I'm pretty sure are not appropriate to say in front of anybody. So You're just lucky I wasn't recording. Exactly. It. Sounds like a Patreon perk. <laughs> So, moving on, away from coffee, to Madness. Warners. They've announced the first of their new streaming platform. Remember, this is what they shuttered Filmstruck for. They have announced that their Warner Media streaming platform is going to launch with three tiers of service. They have not said how much the service is going to cost, how much each tier is, but the services are described as an entry-level movie-focused package, with a premium service with with original programming and blockbuster movies, and a third option that bundles content from the first two, plus an extensive library of Warner Media and licensed content that will include Turner. So essentially, 12 million subscribers paying $10.99 a month wasn't enough to keep Filmstruck open, but they're going to open a streaming service with three tiers, and the most expensive tier is going to be the one with stuff that nobody wanted. So if you really want it, you'll pay more for it, is what they're saying. I'm too mad to even talk about this. Yeah, I'm not paying for this. <laughs> I'm just not. I can't do it. Like, if, like, I know that they have watched TCM. If TCM released, like, a, an app where you could actually do that without having a cable subscription or anything like that, I would totally do something like that, but this thing is just, it's so obviously a cash grab, and they do not give a shit about their archives. They really do not care about the quality of the phones that, that they own. Uh, they, they can go burn in hell. <laughs> I'll just buy the physical media, you assholes. I use Sling. So I get the on-demand they have with TCM, and that's about as good as the Watch TCM app was, and it includes the intros. He, and I'm not even really big, as, as I told Lauren when this was announced, I'm not big on the Criterion service that they're announcing, which is trying to cold, have that curated film struck touch. But Warner Media, this is so crass. This is so crass to close a service and then the, literally the next day announce, oh, we're going to have this new service. And by the way, you classic film fans get to expect to pay top dollar for this and for a bunch of stuff that you don't want either. I want to know, so so the second tier is, is original programming? Yeah. I don't even know what that is. I really, I think that Warner is going to wind up shooting themselves in the foot with this. No, I think what's going to happen is not enough people are going to pay for that top tier, and they're going to say, see, none of you guys wanted it anyway, and they're going to totally lie about what it actually means. Everybody is at, everybody is in it to make money. Everyone. Like, Criterion is in it to make money, Kino is in it to make money, Warner is in it to make money. I do feel like at least Criterion cares about the preservation of film and cares about making their films available to people, um, which is why I'm much more willing to support a Criterion channel, uh, even though I'm only going to get a certain, like that kind of content, because I actually feel like, you know, they, they give a shit about what they're doing. I, I don't think that Warner cares. Warner, Warner is just like, how can we monetize this? Uh, to to the degree that, yeah, the, the people eventually just go like, you know what, I, I can't afford it, I don't want to do it. Warner alluded to the fact that Netflix and other companies like Hulu, third-party places that don't have this vast library of content are going to have issues 
getting programming. And we're seeing this with the slow fragmentation of everybody starting their own streaming service between Warner Media and Disney. And what do we keep saying? We're not going to pay for 18 different services. You know, we want the most for our dollar. So if I can't watch Disney movies on Warner, but I can watch it on Netflix, and I can watch some Warner, I mean, like... Well, but Disney's movies won't be anywhere but the Disney service. That's the whole point. Exactly. But Warner's also saying, well, we should do that, too. I do think that there's going to be, like, an expansion and then a contraction. So what we're getting is an expansion. So, like you're saying, all these things are are fragmenting. And I probably things like Disney will be successful because because Disney has such a recognizable brand. And now Warner is doing this, but I don't think that Warner has the same kind of brand that Disney does and they do not have the same kind of appeal. So they don't have the appeal to like to to families in the same way that Disney does. I really don't think that Warner is going to be successful with what they're trying to do. And and so something else will change. They'll wind up licensing things, you know, to Hulu or to Netflix again or to something like that. So there's going to be a lot of ebb and flow. And who knows? It could be 10 years before we know what actually is, is happening. And by that point, I don't know, we might be beaming movies into our brains. by, by Or the world will have I'd be okay with that. Or there will be no movies, just none. Everybody had their movies no longer exist. Who knows? So, yeah, Warner Media is just continuing to shoot themselves in the foot. So, screw them. Moving on to a little trailer talk. We had two trailers this week that made us feel like we had gone back in time. Starting with Artemis Fowl. This is the long gestating adaptation of the book series about an Irish criminal mastermind who kidnaps a fairy for ransom so that he can find his missing father and restore a family fortune. Yeah, it's directed by Kenneth Branagh, has a great cast. I don't know the books. I remember when they came out, this movie I, I remember has been in development since 2001. And I remember a couple months ago, Disney had to get Harvey Weinstein's name removed as a producer from this film. But as, as I've noticed from everybody that's watched the trailer, who are fans of the book, they've been saying this is about 10 years too late. It's got a really weird vibe of, yeah, shouldn't this have been like 10 years ago? I hadn't gotten quite there yet, but it reminded me like that wave of cinema we got like right around like The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I, I know nothing about the books. I mean, it looked fine. To me, it didn't look like at Disney. I just, I overall wasn't that impressed by it. I mean, it looked pretty, but there wasn't much to pull me into it. I didn't know Branagh was directing, and I'll usually give Branagh the benefit of the doubt because I love that man. But other than that, I we'll see, I guess. It's great that you brought up a, a movie from the mid-2000s because this feels, I, when I was watching it, it felt like Aragon. If anybody remembers that movie, which most people don't. Uh, (laughs) Also based on an, at the time, very popular, right as the YA boom started, when everybody was just buying up books. That one was written by like a 17-year-old kid. Right. And I want to say that this this book is also got that kind of cachet of, of really capturing kids' attentions at that time. And I remember the Artemis Fowl books being huge. But the time has passed, you know? The people who read the Artemis Fowl books as kids are now adults at this point. 
and how long it's taken to translate this story. They're all in college now. <laughs> it was like, what the fuck is happening? Where was this movie when I was 13? You know, I, I just, I feel like this is one of those movies that really missed the boat. When I talked about it on a Disney podcast last night, somebody said it looked like a wrinkle in time. I think that that is casting unfair Right, right. And I was just thinking, okay, well, they're both based on books. I can see that, but... You know, I know I know people love Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express, Lauren. Is great. <laughs> but this didn't even feel like that. As a director, Branagh is very hit and miss. I mean, we, he directed the first Thor, which was fine. His style is very extreme, like, and that's true even for Murder on the Orient Express. And I think that it works sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. So this could be, like, in terms of, a, of directing, this could be great. Or it just could be disastrous there's no there's absolutely no way to tell based upon the director i don't think just the poster looks like something that belongs in the early 2000s this movie just feels so out of place it just feels so weird it feels like we're in a time warp it feels very out of place in the disney lineup too and it was like that was the one that jumped out it's like that one of these things is not like the other yeah this will be very interesting to see when it actually comes out next august this is a summer release, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. One movie we all know is going to make buckets of money and it doesn't matter what we say about whether it's a shot for shot remake or not, is The Lion King. The first trailer for the remake came out, it's directed by Jon Favreau, has a stacked cast of people that I'm very excited to see. And the first trailer came out and a lot of us said, hey, I think we've seen this before. Because <laughs> it was... A shot-for-shot remake of the first trailer. It just had CGI. And I'm not fucking saying live-action, because it's not live-action. There's not a lion with peanut butter in its mouth, okay? No, that is not (laughs) live-action. I think I'd be more interested if it was live-action. Exactly! I would love a live-action movie where they had to try to keep the lions from eating, you know, the bird, okay? That would be really cool. (laughs) (laughs) How many toucans we lost making this movie? <laughs> it was like look at the olden days of Disney when you had real problems with animals and things like that. Yeah, lions, you know, <laughs> spitting feathers out of their mouths. Like, yeah. the, the story that I always heard, and I have never found any proof to this, is that when Disneyland opened, they actually had a circus that they trotted live animals down Main Street USA, but they had to stop it after like a week because a panther ate another animal like in front of the children i have never found Mm -hmm. any proof of that but i've heard of it never heard that rumor i I need to do more research it's very fascinating fascinating. to me but i've never actually found anything to prove that unlike most people that said oh it's a shot for shot remake i feel this is deliberate i feel they deliberately remade the first trailer and that this might not be a shot for shot remake but the trailer is a shot for shot remake to remind you of 1994 and how much you loved that. But the problem is, is that first trailer from 94 is brilliant. It's a fantastic trailer. Why you would want to recreate that and have people compare is beyond me. Well, the problem I had was that it was like this huge in-your-face reminder that now we have to see Mufasa die again, but more realistic. Well, I think, too, the problem that I had was is comparing the two trailers. You really understand why this is an unnecessary movie, because if you look at that first trailer, the reason you do animation is because 
of the colors, you know, the vibrancy of the colors, the expressiveness of the animals. I hate to tell you guys, but animals' faces do not lend themselves to animation. It's why women's eyes aren't three sizes bigger than their head. They take some liberties with animated films. And you're going to lose all that with this movie. The comparison is, is The Jungle Book, which is which Favreau did, and, and which was kind of one of the first live-action versions of an animated film. And what really worked with that is that it was different from the original film. And then also you've got a real live boy playing Mowgli, and there's, there's a little bit more of an attachment to that. It's not just a bunch of CGI animals talking to each other, which is what The Lion King is going to be. There are no people in The Lion King. They're, like I would even respect this movie more if they had used as much live-action animals as they could and then animated other parts of it like that would at least be a little more realistic or something like that but this i'm just like i like the original film the original film was you know a 90s animated film it's very well done it's popular everybody loves it why do i need to see this we need to see this because beauty and the beast made a boat and beauty and the beast is (laughs) awful so (laughs) <laughs> and Beyonce wasn't but in again, it. But again, at least there are people in it. Like, it, the real human beings doing things. That's very true. That is, I yeah. will totally defend Meeting the Beast over this one. Sorry, oh, I would love... You know what they should have just done is re-released this trailer, this new trailer, with picture in picture with Jeremy Irons in the corner smoking a cigar being like, why the fuck am I not in this movie? I mean, they brought James Earl Jones back. Exactly. I mean, they might as well. And I mean, James Earl Jones <laughs> yeah. is great, okay? But the the reason we, well, the reason I love the 94 movie is because you have two guys with two great voices duking it out for supremacy. I mean, and it, it's kind of why yeah. it sucks that, you know, Simba becomes Matthew Broderick because you're like, oh, you inherited your mom's voice, didn't you? Like, you didn't get <laughs> any of that lineage. That's sad. That's that's really sad. See, I'm, I'm going to offend all of the fanboys out there who, I, you know, I know they all listen. Seth Rogen is no Nathan Lane. I was all about Timon and Pumbaa back in the day. They were my boys. And the whole, you bring back James Earl Jones, but I'm losing Nathan Lane? Come on. But John Oliver is totally Zazu. Oh, yeah, John Oliver is perfect. <laughs> oh, that works. No, I mean, I love Rowan Atkinson, but I'm yeah, fine with yeah. that. Yeah, Seth Rogen, I feel, is going to make Pumbaa a total stoner. And I'm just not really feeling that. Maybe we'll give Nala a character this time. Like, that's cool. It's Beyonce. No. Here's... Here's hoping. I mean, they Donald do. Glover's awesome. Chiwetel Ejiofor is doing, you know, playing Scar. That's really cool. I mean, it's enough to make me not sad that Jeremy Irons is in in this film. But I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm so on the fence with this movie. <laughs> but that comes out next July. Maybe this is Gus Van Sant's shot for shot remake. You know, of the like. I don't know. Maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe it is. Although, we forget Gus Van Zandt did change one scene. I'm hoping that there's not some sort of weird scene of Simba, you know, jacking it through a peephole. I don't know, but yeah, yeah. My mom's just like, wait, what? You watch the Psycho remake, Mom. That That's the one scene they changed. A whole new dark territory has been entered in my, my mom mind. is now horrified about Psycho now. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, the number of people that have tried to like explain how how Gus Van Sant's Psycho is actually you know is actually this really clever play on Psycho, and it's like no guys, it's a shot for shot remake of a. It's a shot for shot remake with a masturbating scene. That's it. That's that's really it. We have a segment this week. It's called and another thing. And another thing is when we have a rant 
about something that bothers us. Like, A Star is Born for Lauren, or... Fuck that movie! <laughs> I'm actually uh, right there with you. I rewatched it this week, and I still ended sa- up saying that at the end. This week's And Another Thing comes courtesy of Karen. Karen, what makes you mad this week? Oh, so many things. But the one thing I'm going to talk about is an article from The Hollywood Reporter. This is actually a pretty interesting article that we could have covered in the news, but... There's one little detail that just really pissed me off, and I just had to talk about it. The title is A New Paradigm, How Netflix and Apple Are Upending Hollywood Hierarchy with Studio Deals. And this is all talking about how Paramount and Netflix just signed a big like producing deal, and, and A24 has one now with, I guess, Apple. What we were just talking about, Disney and Warner are kind of launching their own streaming services for their own movies. Paramount saying, uh, no, we're going to actually partner with Netflix. So that's cool. That's great. That's wonderful. Except for that, the opening paragraph of this article says, in the future, when we chart the year the movie business changed, we may thank or blame Noah Centineo. That's because the square-jawed, heartthrobs teen romantic comedy for Netflix to all the boys I've loved before is pointing the way toward a new hierarchy in Hollywood, one of which the 106-year-old studio behind movies like The Godfather and Transformers produces original films for a streaming service. Okay, what the fuck? I'm sorry. (laughs) This article, and what makes it even more frustrating, is this was written by a woman. This was written by Rebecca Keegan. And she's sitting there saying that to all the boys I've loved before is Noah Centineo's movie and that he's the reason that that was successful and that he's the reason that Netflix and Paramount have a deal? What the hell? You're totally dismissing the fact that this is a movie about girls and not only girls, but Asian American girls. Like, where did any of this come from? She compl- like, okay, fine. People have this weird obsession with this seventeen-year-old boy, but he's not the reason for any of this. All right, I'm so glad to hear someone else just shout on this podcast. Wow, that was awesome, Karen. Uh, it felt really good. I've been bottling that up for a while. But you, you bring up a wonderfully articulated point, and it's something I've had a problem with since To All the Boys I've Loved Before has come out, which is that Noah Centineo has become this A-list star almost overnight. And yet Lana Condor, who is the actual lead of the movie, is not. And I'm not understanding that. You know, what was, wasn't he on the cover of, like, Vanity Fair or something? Something like that, yeah. He's been everywhere all summer. He was on the cover of a major magazine and somebody was saying, hey, why isn't, you know, Lana Condor on the cover of, of this magazine? Or the fact that it's directed by Susan Johnson or that its script is written by, by Sofia Alvarez and Jenny Han. Uh, Jenny Han wrote the novel. Why, where are they? Where are they in this, this press tour? Why is it the white guy? Nope, it's just the square-jawed, beautiful boy. That's, he's he's the reason that everything is successful. I could have sworn it was John Corbett was the reason everything was successful in that movie. I I guess I was wrong. Um, <laughs> I like no I like to know Centineo. I, I want to call him Centino, but that's not 
his name. Yeah, I, I mean, he does not carry that film in any sense. It's not like he's the good part and everybody else is just sort of meh. The reason why he's being featured, it, it rhymes with schmexism and it rhymes with schmacism. So Exactly. Schmacism. I'm trying to wonder what that word is. Schmacism. Schmacism. <laughs> oh, Kristen. Never change. That's going to close out this week's edition of And Another Thing. If you have something that you want to bitch about, send it to us and we will rant in our inimitable style for you. We will be your voice. <laughs> Moving on to the reviews. We have a couple reviews. Um, before we get into the collective one, we'll let uh, a couple people bring up some stuff. Lauren, you watched Kino's awesome new Pioneers of Women Filmmakers collection. I did. I did. I actually have not made it I all the way through everything because there are a lot of films on this collection. It, it's it's just fantastic. Uh, I, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna be posting a a, a thorough review uh, over the next couple of days. Go out and get it, guys. Like it's expensive. I think that the the retail price right now is sixty dollars. I'm certain that it will go on sale at some point or something like that. But just go out and get it. These are fantastic films. They've been brilliantly restored. These are female filmmakers that were incredibly influential in the growth of cinema, in the growth of Hollywood in particular, but also just in, in independent cinema. And I mean, these are films that cover all kinds of things. These are female perspectives on abortion and pregnancy out of wedlock. And there are Westerns that are directed by women featuring women as the heroes who are saving the men. There's an episodic Western on this collection in which a woman is just like, oh, you kidnapped my boyfriend? I'm gonna burn down your fucking house. That sounds reasonable. It's awesome. She just like makes herself a bow and lights an arrow on fire to fires it. She's just like, fuck you. I need this. It's so good. There's so much interesting stuff. And a lot of these, you know, there, there are definitely some filmmakers that you would have heard of. Mabel Norman, you may have heard of Lois Weber and hopefully Zora Neale Hurston. But there are also like filmmakers that some of whom produce some of the most popular films um, in the teens and in the early 20s. And then we're just kind of shuffled to the side and ignored in favor of a much more male dominated industry. And it's so wonderful to see these films well produced, well curated. There's an extensive, there's an 80 page booklet with essays discussing particularly some of the recovery of some of these films and the importance that women had in the development of early cinema. And it just kind of reminds us, first of all, that women have been ignored so often in cinema. And it's also a good fuck you to some of the film bros who are just like, well, women just don't want to direct. It's just like, no, women have actually been directing in some ways for longer than men and have developed some of the techniques that we still use in, in cinema. These are incredibly important films. Like, go out and get it. Support Kino. Support them doing this kind of thing. They, they've really produced a great collection. I'm excited to see this. TCM was showing several of the shorts over November. And so it was great to kind of see some Lois Weber stuff, some Alice Guy Blachet. It was awesome. It's so amazing that this film history is being found after so long. But moving on to other bits of history that are causing some controversy. Green Book! Kim and Karen saw Green Book. Is it the second coming of Oscar Gold? I came out of this movie wondering what the hell I missed. Because it was... I've been hearing all of this positively glowing talk on it. 
I mean, if I see another article about, you know, I can't throw a rock without hitting an article about Viggo Mortensen having Oscar hopes until he said a certain objectionable phrase in an interview. This was problematic as hell. Troubling, I thought. I'm going to start with a nitpicky point as hell that bothered the hell out of me. So the first scene takes place in the, or opening scene takes place in the Copacabana. And there is a crooner up there. And they keep name dropping. It's like, oh, Bobby Rydell's on screen. Bobby Rydell. They, they keep telling you it's Bobby Rydell because they want it to be Bobby Rydell. The man neither looks nor sounds like Bobby Rydell. If you're going to cast, if you're going to make sure we know this is Bobby Rydell, either cast him to fucking look like him or have him like lip sync to him. That And that started me on the wrong foot in that movie, and it just kept going further downhill. So step aside to actual coherent points. This is the whitest, most white-privileged, white-skewed movie I think i have ever seen this movie wants to it wants so desperately to be this woke progressive award season movie one of the script writers is i believe a son of the vigo mortensen character and you can totally tell you've got you know the loving glasses focused on the the tony lip character so we're seeing everything through his perspective which is completely doing such a disservice to the far more interesting dr shirley marishala ali character they drop such interesting tidbits but i really don't need to see racism through the lens of essentially what turned what to me was a working class italian stereotype mortensen's performance to me was not even that good i mean it was fun but that it was one gigantic Italian stereotype after another, all of those characters. The gem that they had in there was Ali, and he is completely shoved to the back because they're choosing to look at this troubling racism, this troubling segregation during this concert tour in the South, but we're being forced to look at it through the Mortensen character. I don't, we don't need to tell that story. I was trying to figure out because I was writing my review relatively recently on it. And it all came back to me that there is a conversation towards the end of the third act between the two in the car. It's kind of one of the concluding scenes. We have the Viggo Mortensen character equating being Italian in America to being black in America. And then essentially telling the Dr. Shirley character that he's not black enough. That conversation bothered me. And then the fact that we're really taking it through, we continue to see things through his perspective. It it wasn't right. It sat really wrong with me and it's continued to percolate since I've seen it. The love this movie is saying is completely, I just don't understand it. I mean, I don't know, Karen, I don't know how you felt. I saw it in a theater in Orange County, California, far as I could tell, pretty much everybody in the theater was white. So there were a lot of appreciative chuckles throughout at things that I'm like, hmm, it's easy to laugh at this stuff when you're white. But I know that there are a lot of people who had a lot of problems with the film. And I completely agree with that. I do not actually understand why people are praising this so much. I didn't, because there's a lot of the idea of the white savior 
or just like, oh, this is a, a movie about racism for white people to make them feel good about not being racist. And it's like, I didn't even get that. It's the help. It's it's driving Miss oh, Daisy. Oh, no, I think this is even like way on a different level from those because, Ooh. yeah, his racism, his overt racism in this movie is played for like, oh, isn't that quaint and adorable? Because we know that he's going to change by the end. Spoiler alert, but in the opening scene of the movie, he comes home, like, after that night, you know, working at the Copa, he comes home from work, or he he gets up the next morning, that's what it is. He gets up the next day, and, like, half his family is there, because his wife is in the kitchen, they have two workers come over to fix something in their house. Well, both of the workers are black. And so the family came over to make sure that the wife was okay because there are these two black men in their house. And she is very sweet and gives them lemonade. He sees them drinking out of his glasses. He throws the glasses in the garbage. And as that's happening, like the people in the audience that I was watching this with are kind of laughing about it because they know like, oh, but he's going to turn it around by the end. I'm sorry, but there's no exploration of that. Because it's written by his son. Well, that, and it's directed by a white guy. And this is very intentionally, from start to finish, always supposed to be a story from the white perspective. And what's interesting about that to me is the fact that Italians were very persecuted. Yeah. And there's no exploration of that either. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that that's on the same level anywhere near what the black experience has been in this country, but it's like, there are just a lot of ways that they could have talked about racism in very productive ways. And they chose to not do that. They're just trying to tell this fun road trip story where someone gets cured of being a bigot. And it just didn't work for me at all. Vigo Mortensen eats a whole pizza in one sitting. And he makes Mahershala Ali eat fried chicken because, right. He's teaching him how to be, you know, stereotypical. He's, He's teaching him how to be black. Yeah. But his version, of black that's the thing and it's like there's only two scenes and they're not even complete scenes that show anything that is from dr shirley's point of view at all no lines of dialogue in those well there's little line of dialogue in one of them but it's like just showing him being very lonely and isolated and then of course what happens then the next thing you know Tony's back in the picture and then they're he's all good and he's feeling better he's not lonely anymore and it's just it just is a very frustrating experience and I really I don't even know how people can feel good watching this movie it's so cursory it's just very shallow and it could have been so much better there's so many ways that they could have really made this a deep and thoughtful and really lovely story and instead it's just basically it just becomes this road trip movie about this odd couple Candace frederick has been writing some really awesome articles about how this movie is racist as hell go read those because mm-hmm. yeah she said it so much better than i could ever say it so and i want to say that the real character that mahershala ali is playing his family is saying that that's not at all how it happened and they have real issues yeah. with yeah, portrayal. They really mm-hmm. loudly objected to, to the way that the film treats the whole relationship and the representation. Of oh, it. yeah. Odds are it'll win Best Picture because that's what happens with these movies. I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a big push for it right now, but I think that it had that early push and then now people are going to be like, but wait a second. 
I don't think it'll have the legs to go. I don't think so either. It's very fluffy. Like I said earlier, if I see another article about Vigo Mortensen's Oscar chances, I'm going to scream. Well, I mean- <laughs> oh, you know, that was something else that really struck me, too. So, like, there was that controversy where in a Q&A at a screening, he dropped the N-word. And what was very strange about that as I was wa- I mean, that's awful. Anyway, what I found really strange when I was watching it last night was he never actually uses that word in the movie. So I cannot for the life of me figure out what kind of context would have made him think that it was okay to use that other than that that's a word that he casually drops in his own conversations, which is terrible. That makes me so yeah. sad. I, I never would have expected that. And, you know, when I had heard, I didn't hear the entire comment of what he had said in, in that panel, but when I was watching the film and I realized, like, this isn't something, like, he was not referencing something that his character said or did in the movie. That was very weird. And also, Linda Cardellini is just a wife at home on the phone, except for this time she's reading letters. Like, it's not a special, amazing, supportive wife supporting performance, and people need to get off that train now. It's Claire Foy, just with, you know, a, you know... A, with, with a New York accent. With a New York accent, and, like, <laughs> hearts in her eyes as she's reading these letters. One movie we can all discuss that we all saw was Widows. We all have seen Widows, and we can talk about it. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it twice now, and I got my screener for it today, so I'm very excited about that. And we were going to talk about it last episode, but Lauren hadn't seen it yet, so we decided to just wait. Widows is the new Steve McQueen film, co-written by Gillian Flynn. It is a heist film. It's not Ocean's 8. Stop with that comparison, because it's terrible. But it's women committing a heist, so they're the same movie. (laughs) See, here's the thing. Okay, I will use Ocean's 8 for a brief second. Ocean's 8 is a movie about how men kind of suck, but they're really just unnecessary in the movie. You know, they're not trying to get one over on a person. They're trying to reestablish a life that is, yes, has a man in it, but that's not really the point. I would say that Widows is all about, and I think we'd all agree because we've all said it at various points, is really about how men create everything bad and then (laughs) take credit for it. But they're really all terrible. And yet, society rewards them for it. Yeah, my reaction tweet the night I saw it was, Widows is a movie about how men ruin everything. <laughs> men ruin everything, but they end up getting rewarded. Except for that one guy over there minding his own right. business. He's okay. We love Bob men in individually. Right? Bob in accounting. He does, he does everything right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're okay with you, Bob. It's just everybody else. Everyone. Uh, but I've, I've seen Widows twice. I thoroughly enjoy this movie i think it's such a great concept of it's just how women are kind of left in this mess that they have to deal with because of men you know whether it's the fact that liam neeson's taken all this money from brian tyree henry's character and poor viola davis has to figure out how to get it to him or something simplistic like colin farrell's character who's trying to run for alderman and he has this legacy of, of wanting to do it. And events happen that end up getting him rewarded for nothing. <laughs> you know, it's just this, it's really showing this world of, the world is created by men, but women are the smarter 
you know, species. You know, we we are able to get away with stuff. We don't take credit for a reason. Like Wonder Woman says, men are unnecessary they for are. most things. They are. They are. I loved it. I went to see this movie, I think, like, the day after we actually had recorded the last episode, so I was kind of, I was kind of annoyed. I was like, oh, I could have talked about it if only one day later. <laughs> I adored it. I thought that the performances were great. I, I liked the fact that, you know, it's Viola Davis gives such a magnetic performance, but she also doesn't completely dominate the film. She's a she seems to be a very giving actress uh, in that she allows like the other actresses to actually have their spaces, and everyone is just so good in it. And that includes the the male characters who are all terrible human beings, but the performances are great. And I just found it to be a very enjoyable, tense, satisfying film. This was helped by the fact that the audience that I was seeing it with were awesome. And like, I, there were these two women next to me who just had some very strong opinions on what was happening. And at one point, it, there, there was a moment in the film where someone was just like, oh, just shoot the motherfucker. <laughs> and, and I was like, yes, yes, just shoot the motherfucker. I, the, there's just very little that I could complain about this film. You know, it was, it was a trifle over long. I think that that was about the only issue that I had with it. But um, Steve McQueen just creates such a wonderful atmosphere and he really establishes the relationships. He, establish, he establishes the layout of the neighborhood, the layout of the city, the relationship between the housing projects and the impoverished areas and a couple of blocks away, these very nice houses and the upper middle classes and that relationship and the, and the way that gender and race and class all work together and all communicate with each other and what that means and, and how that plays out in the film. It's it's just such a good film and it, it really deserves a lot more attention, I think, that it's been given. Given that it's, it's gotten a great deal of critical praise, but it just has not done as well at the box office as it probably should. Lauren, we know you had more than one complaint. You also said that John Bernthal's facial hair was stupid, and I took umbrage with that. So. Well, I literally, until you just said that, I had completely forgotten that John Bernthal. <laughs> I didn't forget. No. It was a pointed because insult. Because he does nothing except have bad facial hair, hair <laughs> be abusive, and die. So That's usually what like, he does in most movies. So. He's very good at it. Yeah. Like, he's very good at being a terrible person. Yeah, he really yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, it works. It's like, I'm glad that you're dead, John Berthal. I'm glad. <laughs> Elizabeth Debicki should have been able to kill him. That she she yeah. needed that. <laughs> Poor exactly. Elizabeth Debicki. I, I love her in this movie. I think she's brilliant. And I love that it's a character that could have been the very stereotypical white woman who doesn't know how to do anything. But that's because, again, society has created this paradigm where she doesn't have to do anything. She's, well, she's almost not allowed to do anything. That's part. I kept hitting my friend I'm like Elizabeth Debicki so deserves more than Leonardo DiCaprio's bestie. Yeah, watching that, I was just like, girl, you could do so she much could. better than she that. Could. Oh my god. But, oh but my that god. That was one of the why? things that's great about it is that even a character like Lucas Haas's character, they're all developed in such a specific way, and they're all so so perfectly placed right when you need them. I didn't feel like there were any wasted characters. I did think that there were some that really could have used more screen time. Like I really wanted more of like Brian Tyree Henry, for example. And that was where I was saying, and this was not at all a criticism of the film. I really enjoyed the film, but I would love to have seen this be a limited series because I wanted more time with everybody. I wanted to explore those relations. I wanted to know more about the Mannings and 
I wanted Cynthia Erivo's character's backstory. Like that's what I was just yeah. gonna say. I wanted a lot more Cynthia Erivo. Uh huh. And and I just and I would love to have had time to explore the relationship between Viola Davis and Liam Neeson. It's not because I think that the movie was was in any way bad. It's just that I wanted so much more of it. My criticism of of Widows was that. There is so much. I think it goes towards Lauren's point of it feeling a bit overlong. There is so much story mm-hmm. packed into a two-hour yeah. film. And and that was kind of my problem is that you'll get the women setting up this heist and the, the concept of like Chicago's government and the distinction between race. But you have so much going on that it often feels like, yeah, Cynthia Rivo's character, Michelle Rodriguez's character... Uh, gets a little short shrift and if this had been a limited series you could have actually had episodes devoted to each of those characters and allowed those stories to get to get fleshed out my other issue with the movie was is and, and i think karen and i disagreed on it was that i felt like you could really tell what was a mcqueen plot and what was a gillian flynn plot oh no i didn't disagree with you on that that was my big criticism is that some of the the twists in the movie feel like you're like oh that that's Gillian Flynn I know I've seen Gone Girl like that I get and then you get you get these really in-depth conversations that Colin Farrell has about you know race and and um the history of Chicago uh that feels very much like a McQueen film they do work together for the most part but you can really tell those dichotomies I'm not certain whether I agree with that I, I felt like because they mesh so well this is it's a thriller right but it is a thriller that is about gender and race and class. And that those two things come together because that's that's the nature of the film itself. You're telling an entertaining story that still has all of these permutations underneath it. And both of those things are given attention and they connect to one another. It's not just one or the other. Maybe I don't have as much of an awareness of Steve McQueen's concerns necessarily whereas Gillian Flynn you're much more like yeah okay she's she's a thriller writer she writes these kinds of stories and you sort of I some of the twists I did not see coming um although they made sense when they happened Mm -hmm. and and did kind of throw me off and made me go like oh what I thought was this film is about is not quite what this film is about and now we're going to go off in a different direction to that um but I I didn't feel like that there was a disconnect or that I could say, you know, the scene was a Gillian Flynn scene and this scene is a Steve McQueen scene. I feel like, I mean, I, d- I get what you're saying, Kristen, and I don't disagree with you, but I also don't disagree with Lauren. I think that it's, yeah, no, and I think it's, I, to me, I think it's pretty clear where the influences were, but I love the fact that Steve McQueen said to himself, I'm assuming this is exactly how this happened. I'm making a movie about women, strong women. I am not a strong woman, so I'm going to bring a woman in to help me co-write this story so that I get this right. I will say that Brian Tyree Henry becomes the worst of the worst. I was telling, I know Karen and I talked about this. His character becomes, there are villains in this movie. Daniel Kaluuya's character is terrifying, but he is nothing once you see the one scene that Brian Tyree Henry has with the delightful little dog, I Olivia. told my mom ahead of time, don't worry, the dog yeah, is don't fine. Worry. 
that I was I was triggered by that yes, scene yes, so yeah. hard. You know, I was I was just like, look, everyone else can die. You that dog exactly. alone. You that dog that dog if that dog dies, I'm yep. living. I'm just sitting like, there thinking, it. you watch Daniel Kaluuya like murder people, and you're just like, nope, nope, the other guy, okay, with the fucking dog. Like that's not right. Exactly. <laughs> If Daniel Kaluuya does not get Oscar talk for that, I will be sorely disappointed. That was a hell of a performance from him. He was it's, so yeah. disgustingly hateable, and it was it was just such a turn. I loved it. What was so great about it too is I feel like it made last year's Oscar nomination less of a feel like less of a fluke. Not that it was because oh, he was great in Get Out, but this is like a stunning actor. Yeah, but this really seals it. It's not like he just yeah. had one great role in one good movie. It was just like, oh wait, no, he's actually really good. And honestly, if I had seen Widows before Get Out, I don't think I would ever trust him to be a good guy ever. I was also very happy to see Liam Neeson in a good, like, where he's actually acting and doing good work. I was just thinking, <laughs> he's been wasting himself in these action movies, and I forgot that Liam Neeson can actually act when, mm. when told to. <laughs> I was at an screening, and they had a Q&A afterwards, and the moderator asked Viola Davis what it was that made her sign on to the role. She got, obviously got more involved in it later, but she said... <laughs> did you see the part where I was kissing Liam Neeson? <laughs> and it was just so funny. And I love her. <laughs> it was like, so apparently Viola has also seen Rob Roy. And she was just like, yep, that's happening. I mean, I, th- I think that we also have to just give props to the male actors in this, who, who are completely dominated by the women in it as, as it should be. But they, they're very good in the parts that they have. And they're very good. Like, you know, uh, Daniel Kaluuya and um, Brian Tyree Henry are excellent. Colin Farrell. Is excellent. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly his, enjoyed those Colin Farrell. His scenes. accent is is wonky, but is. he is very good. I, I was I yeah, was looking I at the really suit, so maybe much. I was biased. If there was one uh, character in it that I was just like scratching my head a little bit, it was Robert Duvall, and it was because it felt like they just kind of put a microphone and, and a camera in front of him and said, "Just talk." Like it was, it was very odd. I think I I wrote in my review that he's odd. He's doing Newsies again. He's he's playing William Randolph Hearst in Newsies. You know what? It, you know what? It, Joseph Pulitzer. But you know what? It oh, reminded that's right. Me of, Thank right. you for smoking. <laughs> oh yeah. I wanted to just jump in too to get back just to backtrack a bit. The Jillian uh, Flynn McQueen. I thought I to me that worked really well. I have tried McQueen a number of times and. While he makes stunning films, I've always had trouble accessing them. They've been such hard viewings for me. I I wasn't sitting there going, oh, there's him, there's her. I thought the voices combined really well, and I thought it made it, yeah, that probably his most accessible film. Yeah, I was going to say, this is easily the film that most Steve McQueen fans will be like, I can actually watch this more than once. Shame was such a hard viewing. (laughs) I could have made a really crass comment, but I won't. Um, and, and as somebody who owns it on Blu-ray, I've watched it more than one. It's not something that most people would watch at Christmas time, um, unless you're me. And Hunger is also, I mean, it's a one and done movie. Like you're watching someone starve to death. You can't really watch that more than once. But I, I did want to say something about the, um, the, the woman who plays... Colin Farrell's character's campaign manager. And I think the actress is Molly Kunz. I was really interested in her character because she is in almost every scene that he's in. Yeah. 
Um, she's, she basically follows him around, but there is one scene where she talks and you can just hear her dominance. Um, and it's the scene where they, they get, they've just like had a, a sort of a campaign rally of the, his, his support for, um, female entrepreneurs in, uh, in the district and they get into the car and you don't actually see them, two of them sitting in the back seat. That's together. a fascinating shot. It is a brilliant shot. And you, and part of what is going on is that you've got this long take of them going through, um, the neighborhood and actually going from what are basically the slums to the upper middle class gated community. And she talks and she, he says almost nothing. Like she just dominates him throughout the entire conversation. And you're suddenly like, this woman is in, she's the one that's in control. The men are not in control. He's not particularly in control. She is the one that understands all of the power dynamics. She's the one that has all of this dominance. And I don't think that she says much at all after that, um, except to kind of stand behind him. There's this wonderful sense of her character of like, and it go it connects to to all of the women whose, whose husbands have been killed and to all of the widows and um, to all of those other relationships that she is running things at some level and she is actually the badass she is actually the hard ass who is going to be one of the people that's in power at the end of all of this i really liked that widows is awesome everybody go see it it is so good um we all recommend it correct yep yeah go see it it's awesome men are trash (laughs) and we say that with love kind of not really Mostly. Uh, except for that one guy over there. Except for like, Bob and okay. Accounting. So if you're, if you're the one guy over there, you're fine. If you're not, then, then there's a problem. <laughs> well, that's going to close out this episode of Citizen Dame. You can get in touch with us uh, tons of different ways. Listen to the podcast at citizendame.podbean.com or Stitcher Radio or Player FM, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are listening on iTunes, consider helping us out by leaving a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us, send us your questions, comments, suggestions to Twitter at CitizenDamePod or our email, which is CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page that is there. It's Facebook.com slash CitizenDame. If you head over to our website, CitizenDamePod.com, you can find a variety of writings from all of us. We do our show notes with links and trailers that you can catch up on. We have our top fives. This week, we did our top five overrated directors. So if you already <laughs> don't like us, you'll probably watch a, a read us shitting on one of your darlings. Uh, Kim does her regular Feminist Fridays looking at classic film and feminism. And Lauren has started Damestruck column looking at the films you can watch on various streaming services that aren't filmstruck uh there are there are options people you are not alone uh we also have thirst traps i'm going to be working on some pieces hopefully my what i did for love article will be soon i i can't believe i forgot that i keep forgetting it that's the sad thing um, if you want to watch the movie, <laughs> the funny thing is, I've seen that I could probably re like watch, write the review without re watching the movie because I've seen it more than once and it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but you can also support us with your money 
at uh, patreon.com slash citizendame. We have a wealth of perks over there, including full-length episodes. We are gearing up to do... Yes, we have talked about it. We have tried to avoid it, and it's finally happening. We are going to be recording our audio commentary on Suicide Squad. That will only be available for Patreon, though, so if you want to get in on that, patreon.com slash citizendame. We also have our boyfriend draft, our numerous episodes, and if you submit $3 or more, you get a handy-dandy Citizen Dame pin to wear. Hopefully, if the envelopes I use don't end up ripping in transit. <sighs> That's a long story. Um, and if you would like to buy some merch, we have a Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. We have a, a couple items up there already. You can get Citizen Dame logos all over different items. We also have our Miss Your Pine collection, which you can get on all sorts of different things, including a notebook. I actually kind of want to buy the notebook. Um, Christmas present, people. Um, or we have a bunch of other things. Um, we're, we aren't adding any new designs right now, um, but if you have a, a line or something that you would love to buy on a piece of merchandise that isn't made yet, reach out to us and I can whip one up just for you to buy. Okay, we, we aim to please. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Karen, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And Lauren? I am at LH And Business. Kim? At KPR624. Are we going to be back next week? I think so. I think so. We don't yes. take a hiatus again for another couple of weeks, but we will be back next week, hopefully talking about less trash, more fun. Does anybody have any screenings this week? I don't think I have any. Um, I am seeing I, I Burning finally. Uh, they sent me a screening link for that, so I can. Oh, I'm going take... to hang out with Stephen Yun. So, God, Karen. Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Exactly. Must be nice. Exactly. Must be nice. Well, I did get to talk to John Cho last week, so there. Boom. That's, um, that's a pretty good one, must too. Must be nice. <laughs> he is a delight, by the way. Um, but yes, uh, we will be back next week. Uh, until then, send us your questions, and we will be back then. Bye. Bye. So over here, we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now, over here, we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We gotta start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not gonna be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off.